in your Bibles, please, for our reading in the Old Testament slot to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Or, if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken. No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge. If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and maketh merchandise of him, or selleth him, then that thief shall die, and thou shalt put evil away from among you. Take heed in the plague of leprosy, <clears throat> that thou observe diligently and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you as I commanded them so shall ye observe to do. Remember what the Lord thy God did unto Miriam by the way, after that ye were come forth out of Egypt. When thou dost lend thy brother anything, thou shalt not go into his house to fetch his pledge. Thou shalt stand abroad, and the man to whom thou dost lend shall bring out the pledge abroad unto thee. And if the man be poor, thou shalt not sleep, with his pledge. In any case, thou shalt deliver him the pledge again when the sun goeth down, that he may sleep in his own raiment, and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. <clears throat> Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. 
Therefore I command thee to do this thing. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in the field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. In these next two chapters, as I have told you already in the chapters that preceded this, but I want to make an, an, an emphatic statement here. I want to emphasize it even more. When we come to a, a passages of Scripture like Deuteronomy 24 and 5, we're going to uh, remember that there are many passages of Scripture that need other passages to inform them. That when, what we come to here in Deuteronomy 24 is not only or is not the only information we have on those circumstances. Very often we end up uh, turning aside from right judgment, right practice, right living, because we read only one passage of Scripture on a given topic rather than rounding that out with all of the passages that speak to it. These two chapters have a lot to say about things that other scriptures also bring to bear, um, uh, other information other scriptures bring to bear on those same topics. So I want to make sure that we understand that going into this passage because there are other things said in other passages that uh, we have to fold in to our understanding in this passage. Okay? All right. So let's go on forward then. In verses 1 through 4, we have something that, is, uh, that was important for the Old Testament economy. And yet in chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus will make a statement that really brings this up to date in the New Testament. What is commanded here in chapter 24, Jesus will say in Matthew 19... That it was given because of the hardness of men's hearts. And that when we read such things in the New Testament, we are induced then to understand uh, 24, 1 through 4 as being applicable to the Old Testament economy, but not so in the New Testament. There's something to be said here that cannot now be said. So it's important for us to think through that together, isn't it? So the circumstance is a man has taken a wife and uh, they get married and something happens in their intimacy. It's not said what. But the man finds literally in the Hebrew uh, a, a, a matter of uncleanness. Really a matter of nakedness. That's what it's called in the original. A matter of nakedness. And I'm thinking... Uh, and most commentators would agree that really what's being spoken of here is he has found her not to be what she represented. 
Now, there are various interpretations of that. Some would say that, that, she, was, that she had a physical deformity that, uh, that was not made known. Okay? That nakedness would be something that you would only know with regard to human intimacy. Or she was barren and he didn't know. Or she was not pure and he didn't know. In other words, she was represented in one way when he married her, but when, he, when they became uh, fully engaged in that, he found out that there was something else there. And so he's looking for, let's say it's barrenness, he's looking for seed. He's looking for the perpetuation of his name. Or he found her uh, impure. He, he was looking for a wife that was a virgin, and he found her to have a matter of nakedness instead. There was shame upon her. And so he has the, the right under Moses to write her a bill of divorcement and send her out. Keep in mind that for her, that was a mercy. Because she was then able to go and marry another. Because she had a bill of divorcement, that first relationship was gone. Now, why would Jesus update that in the New Testament? Why would he say that Moses gave you that for the hardness of your hearts? Well, Matthew Henry has an idea. It's hard to be dogmatic on such things. But Matthew Henry's idea was that if, if a man found a matter of nakedness in his wife and had no other remedy, she might, quote, meet with some uh, terrible accident in the home. Well, that would certainly evince hard-heartedness, wouldn't it? So, notice that, that he sends her out. She is free to be married uh, to whomsoever will take her up with that bill of divorcement. Keep in mind also for her that that would be a matter of kindness and that the one who takes her up already knows about her estate. And so he is, he is receiving her uh, as his wife with all of that knowledge. And so there is an opportunity for a good ending here, in other words. But if her, first if her second husband sends her out, she may not go back to her first husband because that's abomination to the Lord. It's confusion. Um, we're not to treat marriage like that. The sanctity of marriage is to be maintained. So that's the first section, verses 1 through 4. Uh, verse 5, the sanctity of marriage is to be maintained, especially as it regards taking a new wife. And so Matthew 24, verse 5 teaches us that when a husband and wife are married, that the man is freed from military service and other stressful work, that he may stay home and cheer his wife for a year. Uh, let's keep in mind, you know, this, that sounds quaint to us. Oh, he's stay home. Oh, he's going to care for the poor little girl there, right? Well, keep in mind that women got married in those days when they were 13 and 14 years old. That she may need some, some cheering up, some extra help, as, a, as not, a, not a full-grown adult, as we would call them in our culture, right? And so there's that. And so there is a general equity principle here, I believe, that, that applies, that we want to make sure that we give married couples, when they are first established as a married couple, a year to 
take care of one another, to make sure that they're, that they're settling their, their, their home life and their patterns, they're learning Christian living in the home, that they're comforting e- each other and handling that new estate of theirs, right? There's another thing here that we want to remember, and that is that when the Lord Jesus uh, brought his people out of Egypt, that he lived with them for a year, and then immediately after the first Passover in Numbers chapter 9, he said, now it's time to go into the land of promise. Now they sinned against him and didn't go for 40 years instead. However, notice that Jesus gave his bride a year before they went into the land of promise. Okay? All right, so the next section there, verse 6, No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to the pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge. All right, so we're going to hear about pledges in this chapter. What do we mean by a pledge? If you uh, come into a, a difficult time where you need to borrow money, borrow something, uh, you have to give collateral for that thing that you borrowed. Let's say you, you, you needed, I don't know, 50 shekels of silver to go buy seed for your land or to buy a cart for your oxen or to buy an ox so you could plow or something and you didn't have that money. So what you would do is you would borrow it from your neighbor who did and then you would give him a pledge, some kind of collateral. He would hang on to that and, and that would be, okay, this is how I know that you're going to pay me back. That's what collateral is. Okay, but there are certain things that are off limits for collateral. You can't take a man's grinding stones, right? A millstone. <clears throat> because if you do that, you take his life away. <clears throat> in other words, in our lending, we are to lend for the sake of life, not for the sake of oppression. That lending is not an unlawful thing. And beloved, please understand that there's some fine distinction to be made here. There is indeed lending that is lawful. When we read in our larger catechism on the duties required in the Eighth Commandment, one of those duties is giving and lending freely (coughs) uh, according to our abilities and the necessities of others. However, the Bible also says that the borrower is servant to the lender. Right? The borrower is servant to the lender. And so if we can, (laughs) if it is at all possible... We want to avoid debt. We want to avoid being in debt. We don't ever want to be in that position. But it's not unlawful if the Lord has sent to us some sort of providential judgment and chastisement where we must needs come under that kind of bondage. Okay? So, when the lender lends, however, he has to lend upon goodwill and not evil will. And so if you take a man's upper millstone or his nether millstone the bottom or the top stone that he uses to grind what are you saying to him i'm just going to wait until you all die and then i can take your whole estate right so we can't do that the lending that we lend ought to be for the good of our neighbor and not for his demise we'll have the same thing later when we talk about usury in the next chapter usury is the kind of interest on a loan that makes it so that you will never come out from under debt. That's the definition of usury. Okay, so the next section. Man-stealing. Verse, verse 
uh, verse 7. Um, there is a general equity principle involved here. Paul will mention man-stealing in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he talks about the law. The law is given for the wicked. And one of the sins that he lists is those who steal men. Man-stealing is a horrible crime. But we want also to inform (laughs) our understanding of man-stealing from the Scripture. Let me tell you what man-stealing is. It's when a private citizen on his farm realizes, you know, I don't have enough hands to do all the labor that I need. I've got too many cows. I've got too much seed. I've got too much harvesting to do. I need more help. And so he runs over, two counties over, to where he he won't be known. And he goes to someone's farm there, and he steals a man, probably the son of the householder, and locks him up and brings him back to his own, two counties away, where he would never be suspected to be found, and he makes him labor by force of punishment on his own land. That's man-stealing, and that is punishable by death in Old Testament Israel. It's a wicked, wicked crime. Let me tell you what man-stealing isn't. When an army goes out and conquers a land and takes slaves back, that's not man-stealing. Those are what we call the spoils of war. Okay? So we need to separate in our minds what we're talking about when we think of man-stealing. Man-stealing is not going down to, uh, as many Christian men did in the, in the antebellum south, going down to the harbor and bringing, uh, buying a slave and bringing him back to your home and treating him well and giving him a wife and giving him a place to live and a place for his labor uh, to be useful to him rather than to be slain by his former captors. Slavery is a difficult, difficult circumstance, but it is not scripturally an unlawful circumstance it is a hard thing but it is not an unlawful thing it is a chance for a conquered people to live on and uh, when rightly handled to gain their freedom and then to perpetuate their own uh, families in that way so that's verse 7 verse 8 we're going to learn about leprosy we're going to take heed to the plague of leprosy we're not going to rehash Leviticus 14 here we're simply going to say remember that there have been rules given with regard to leprosy and then very curiously remember Miriam remember that Miriam was I think the second leper ever mentioned in scripture the first was Moses put your hand into your coat take it out it was leprous white as snow put it back in Right? Moses was the first leper mentioned in Scripture, but Miriam was the second because she disrespected Moses. She and Aaron did. And so remember that leprosy is a difficult, difficult affliction that the Lord brings so that you might counsel the leper that if there is any sin, that he might repent as Miriam was called to do. So that's, I, that's, I believe, why Miriam is mentioned here. And that she had to remain outside the camp. So remember all that the priests tell you about that. All right, so verses 10 through 13, a little bit more on lending and the pledge. 
Notice that you will respect your brother that you have lent to. You won't act like a lord over him. And so, when you go to get his pledge, oh, you want your 50 shekels of silver? I'll come in and I'll give you your 50 shekels and I'll take what I want out of your house. No, you don't get to do that. You wait outside. You respect his property. You respect that he is indeed a man in Israel that owns a house. Although he has fallen on times where he needs to uh, borrow, you respect him. You don't go barging into his house as if it were your own to get your pledge. You wait outside. You respect and honor his property. And you wait for him to come out to bring you the pledge. And if that pledge is his garment that he sleeps in, you be sure... And make it available to him every night so he has something to sleep in so he doesn't freeze. Again, lending and borrowing with regard to ancient Israel was a difficult circumstance upon difficult providence and to be avoided at every cost. But if you couldn't avoid it, it was not to be ever oppressive. It was to be healing and helpful to those who had uh, to come under such difficulty. All right, so now verse 14 through 16. Uh, 14 and 15 are really one topic, 16 another. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant. And remember that there were three stations in ancient Israel with regard to you know, basic family structure. There was a master of, a, of an estate. There was a slave in that estate who had an interest in that estate. And then there was a hireling who had no interest anywhere. He had no property. He worked day to day and received money at the end of the day for the work of that day. And that's all he had. Right? You might say, well, he was better off than the slave because at least he was free. Well, he was, he was free all right, but he was free with nothing. The slave had an interest in the home. Okay, so what happens here? Um, at the end of the day, you don't oppress him by holding out wages from him. When he's done with his work, you pay him. Beloved, this is a great principle, and it is often abused. I'll tell you one way it is abused in our day, because you know I used to be an electrical contractor. And so there was uh, this one general contractor that we worked for when we were back in California. And what he would do is, at the end of the job, he's paying you, you know, progress payments, and there's maybe 20% left at the end. And so he has you into the office, and he'll say, okay, well, I don't really have all the money to pay you right now, so if you'll settle with me for half, I'll pay you now. Well, no, I want, I want my 20. I don't want my 10. I want 20%. That's what you owe me. It's what we signed on. Oh, sorry, I don't have it. I'll see you next month. And so what that guy would do is he would hold out and squeeze until he got that 10%. See, that's an exact violation of what we're talking about here. Okay? And notice what it says. What recourse does a hireling have? He can't go hire a lawyer. He's a hireling. All he's got is hand to mouth. What is his recourse? Lest he cry unto the Lord his God, and the Lord hear it, and it be found sin in you. He has a defender, doesn't he? He has an advocate. He has the Lord his God. And do you remember James chapter 5, verse 1? Remember that? Go to now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Why? Your gold and your silver, they're, they're moth-eaten and rusty. Why are they? 
because they've been gained upon the backs of your laborers whose pay you have defrauded and held back. They have cried and their cry has come into the ears of who? Jehovah Tzivayoth, the Lord of armies. (laughs) And he's coming for you with his army. That's what's being said. So the Lord does take up for those who are defrauded from their wages. Then verse 16, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither the children be put to death for the fathers. That's very clear. We understand what's going on there. We are talking about judicial punishment, however. We're not talking about the consequences of sin, which are often visited upon multiple generations. We're talking about judicial punishment. And then 17 and 18, uh, we've, we've already looked at this, but there is a special consideration given to those who have no helper and no defender in this world. The widow, the fatherless, and the stranger. We are to remember them especially, not that we may, that we may treat them uh, by denying justice to others that they may get more. Not, not that way. But we are to remember that they are often disenfranchised because of their position and be especially sensitive to that to make sure that we don't become oppressors over them by our indifference. And so that's, that begins that discussion in verses 17 and 18. But then that discussion is ended through in 19 through 22 regarding the harvesting and gleaning of our fields. Right? So don't go back over your fields to make sure you get... Every corn of wheat and every olive and every grape out of your vineyard. Go over it once and then leave the rest. The Lord your God will bless you. Um, You will remember your own deprivation in Egypt when you do so. You will remember that you are being kind to others as you would want others to be kind to you. It doesn't say bring them into your house and give them all your wealth. That's not what's being spoken of. But what... What does the man do here? He leaves it in the field. What does that do then for the poor and for the needy? It's not mailbox money for them. (laughs) In other words, they have to get up, put their clothes on, and go glean. They have to go and labor for what they get. You see how, what a wonderful and perfect system that is that, that, that God has designed. Yes, it's built on generosity, but not such gratuitous generosity that you bring it to them, set it on their porch and say... Is this enough? Is this enough? It's not like that at all. They must still get up, pull on their boots, put on their gloves, go into the fields, and find those fields that have been gleaned and differentiate them from those that have not, that they have to go harvest with their hands there. They cannot bring a tool with them, as we read last week, but they can go in and gather for themselves what they need for the day or for many days, perhaps. Things that are left over in the field. But it is not in such a way that, that, the, that the owner becomes beholden to those who would glean. They still must take care of themselves. They are still responsible parties in such a system. All right, with that then, let's stand and continue praising God in the singing of psalms. Let's turn to Psalm